0: Hello, it's back, wag Yes, I've had a, uh, a two-year mo- two hiatus, so it might have been 18 months. Uh, it, seemed, it, it
1: seemed longer than that. It seems like it's been forever.
0: <laughs> and uh, I was just thinking today, uh, you know, I missed doing the old Chinwags. I think what it was is I was doing them back to back week after week. And you know, when you do, I think I got up to about 200 odd. And I was like, you know, I've run out of steam. Run out of puff, but now I'm in my new role at VMware. I suddenly feel reinvigorated and refreshed.
1: And by the way, congratulations, Mike. Thank
0: you very much. Thank you. So, um, with me today is a man who needs no introduction, but I'm going to ask him to do one anyway. You know, there are people out there that are known by a single name. You know, I'm thinking of like Madonna, <laughs> Beyonce, <laughs> Prince, Elvis, even. Uh, And such a gentleman uh, do I have today, uh, and back for the Chimwag Reloaded, and his very first time I managed to get him on, is a man called Chad. And I tell you what, I'm gonna tell a little anecdote about how I met this guy. I met this guy called Morning, who is now my boss, about six years ago, when I was interested in this thing called SRM 1.0. And I looked at it and I'm like, how the hell am I going to learn this when I have no storage arrays that do any replication? Heck, I have a, a Sun Storage A5000, which is basically a JBOD with no RAID levels, never mind replication. So, uh, Morney ended up introducing me to this man called Chad and a man called Vaughn. And I like, hmm, these seem like nice guys. Never met these guys before. <laughs> uh, being a bit like kind of, as a typical blogger, you know, you maybe don't know all the names in the industry. And we were all sat around a table. And I think it was Mornay said, it might need a lot of help. He needs to get some storage arrays. And Chad said, we'll get you some. And then the, uh, Net-up, the guy, <laughs> Net-Up guy and then the HP guy went, and we will too. And I was like, whoa, horsey, whoa. You know, where am I going to put all this gear? And how am I going to power it? You know, so interestingly, EMC and net did actually get there in the end, but I never heard from the, the HP guy. But maybe I would have struggled because, you know, my rack... Was like more storage than I had servers. Believe it or not, this 42U rack. Added. I I, re- I was... remember
1: that really well. That was like a VMworld... world Vegas, at, a, I think. at Vegas at a bar. Um, Sounds little sleazy, so doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, no, it was great. It was great. It was nice to meet you all the way back then, and we've been good friends ever since, yeah. Mike.
0: So uh, a more formal introduction then, Chad. Tell us who you are and who you work for, in case some people live under a stone and don't really know what's going on in the world.
1: So. Um, First things first, uh, it always feels weird when I do this because more than anything, I'm a passionate technologist, blogger. I'm just a dude who puts his pants on one leg at a time, just like anybody else, right? Not some god. My home lab is there in that closet right behind me, right? (laughs) Like literally, if I open that closet door, home lab, right? Just like everybody else.
0: So like Doctor Who, the TARDIS, and you open it up, there's this massive data center behind it. (laughs)
1: <laughs> uh, my my official job, my day job, is uh, I'm the uh, senior vice president of the global systems engineering team at EMC. So these are all the SEs around the around the world, um, my brothers and sisters in arms, trying to help our customers uh, do good things for our customers. Sure. So
0: um, can I ask, how on earth do you get that job title on your business card, though? It's a uh, long one. What you do is you
1: <laughs> just say uh, chief. Nerd, <laughs> so so. Uh, uh, now that that's uh, that's kind of the official job. I write a blog, Virtual Geek, which uh, I try to keep as real as possible. Um, I, uh, I I'm really lucky in my job that I get to, to operate across the federated set of companies. So I've always been a passionate VMware uh, believer. You know, when I'm cut on one arm, I bleed VMware cut on the other arm i bleed emc so for a while i was the vmware and emc dude kind of in the middle of how the two companies alliance stuff stuff. but it was it was weird because it was actually during i don't know that was four or five years ago it was a really bumpy time between emc and vmware like some weird stuff kind of happened where to to ensure that vmware had total autonomy which they have um emc kind of Gave them lots of airspace, and what that meant was that we were actually behind on stuff like SRM integration. We were behind on, on you know, core platform work. When, when uh, you know, VDI before it became end user computing, uh, you know, releases came out. It was all NetApp white papers, and, and you know, and so. Uh, Joe, the, the CEO of of the company, basically no, it's said. No, he Chad,
0: refers to him by first name, not Mister Tuching. Yeah, it's
1: yeah, Joe. Joe, <laughs> Joe, Joe, Joe is a he's a he's a great human being, you know, and a, a good a good dude himself. He uh, he basically said we're gonna put Chad in. We'll call him the VMware Czar. So so I had responsibility for engineering and and alliance stuff, and and we started to build the, the team of V specialists around the globe, mm-hmm. um, you know, to make field people who are experts in the conjunction of those things, but. The long and the short of that is, is, first things first, who am I? Hi, everybody. I'm, I'm just a dude. My official job leader of the roughly 4,000 SEs at EMC. I'm part of the exec staff, which means that I get to talk to lots of customers, work on cool M&A stuff, uh, work across the federation, which is, I think I've got the coolest job on the planet. I'm very happy. Cool.
0: Thank you for that introduction. You know, as a former instructor, all my uh, former instructor colleagues used to laugh at me because when my courses started, the introduction would last until lunchtime. We wouldn't actually start the course until after lunch. So I, uh, <laughs> it's nice to meet somebody who does as long introductions I, as I do. I'm not going to be editing this. This is, you know, un- unexplated. But anyway, let's get into our first topic. As ever with the chinwag, oh, there isn't really a kind of formal kind of, this isn't scripted, as, as you could probably tell. By the smoothness of the delivery of both <laughs> parts. But there is a kind of, hey, what do you want to talk about? And like, I look at somebody's yeah. blog and go, well, you know, rather than just writing about this, sometimes it's easier to actually say things than it is to write them. I know, I know I've know, written a lot of books and blogs in my life. But I actually find it easier talking to people than I do writing. It's, it's Carmel well, like- that makes all my stuff actually make sense rather than just... Bleh! But anyway, <laughs> now that I'm in this hyperconvergence thing and I'm kind of on that learning curve, or as, you know, some people like to talk, like, a journey. We're all a, a journey. journey. All that journey. Is this debate about convergence and hyperconvergence and stuff like it? And I'll, I'll let you into, uh, you know, when I was at the, doing my booth, booth duty the first time at uh-huh. the Unworld this year, the number of people who came up to me and said, so is this a V-block killer? Is this a, a FlexPod killer? And I'm like pouring cold water on this as a, a concept, as an idea. But it's interesting how our own industry and the people who work in it, uh, despite the complexity of everything, there is this sort of binary one and zero sometimes thinking that goes on. It's this or it's this, yeah. which I mean, maybe yeah. that's that's a consequence of our binary kind of upbringing, if you're a geek, that you consider, <laughs> I mean, see it as black and white and that. But how do you uh, give a shade of gray with if you have a one and zero kind of way of looking at things? But anyway, I'm going to shut that up and ask Chad, what's your take on the whole hyperconvergence versus evil wars against the converge kind of model or even going out and getting server switches and storage you know like we used to before
1: self assembly self assembling yeah so um that uh observation that you've made around uh uh techos like us uh, always wanting things to be black and white always wanting something to be the n- the newer better version of something that comes before it um I don't think it's a techo thing. I think it's actually just human nature. Mm. Our 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 brains want simplification. So, for example, and by the way, I don't want to draw this out too much, but I'm very long winded. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I will just split it into two parts <laughs> if you like, you know.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, so part part one. <laughs> um, do you remember the Furious Block versus Nas debates? Oh yeah. Right where the the obviously correct position was that each one actually has got uh strengths and weaknesses you can make a solution work with either but the biggest question is where what works best for you mm-hmm. right um that a- answer while correct people hate people want to hear no it's it's mm-hmm. the future of vsphere storage is going to be all nas or nas sucks it's all you know uh, you know, now fast forward and you can uh, see the same debates occurring in is it docker or kernel mode virtualization? Ah, oh, yes. Yeah, it's, it's one or the other! <laughs> Where the real answer is so patently obvious that basically each one actually has got a very distinct set of strengths and weaknesses mm. and that means that they both have a fit and the question is, depending on what you're trying to do Docker may be easier, faster, more efficient, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Or you might need kernel mode virtualization, or maybe you actually need a blend of both. Mm. Right. And man, I could you could keep going down that list. Pick almost any technology category you want. It, 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 look at the SDN battles. Mm. Right. You know, that, that are that are waging furiously in the in the marketplace, right? Now, here's here's the things, here's my opinion. First things first there is a distinct and decided trend at the customers that I interact with Mm -hmm. where the number of them that are looking for uh, server network and storage infrastructure to be delivered as a system and supported so an economic consumption as a system a support structure as a system because they want to accelerate their uh, their delivery of infrastructure as a service in other words they're acknowledging that the assembly benefit is declining, mm. right? And very much driven by virtualization, you know, in in, in general, right? Okay, great. Now the question then becomes uh, convergence versus hyperconvergence. So usually what that term denotes is it denotes a storage stack, which is a distributed software storage stack. It runs on the server nodes mm. in some sort of... Uh, horizontally scaly outy kind of way. Scaly
0: outy. Right? <laughs> right.
1: Now now every vendor in the ecosystem that does these distributed storage stacks does them in wildly different ways. So I'm not trying to imply that they're that's a singular thing, right? But that's the that's the distinction between converged versus hyperconverged. The so term I,
0: the term I've been using is hyperdivergence. <laughs> Hyper divergence. Because when you look at this particular when you look at convergence and when you look at hyperconvergence, yep. the ironic thing is no one has actually settled upon the same business model for delivering that to customers. Uh-huh. Nor have they converged upon the same architecture for it. So despite yep. the irony, which and I being a former English student, I like words and irony. Yeah. We have this thing called convergence, which is probably the most divergent <laughs> things you could like in terms of how do they get it to a customer and how you know how is it actually structured from a technology standpoint. So, so
1: that's uh, a good. I'm going to steal that one, Mike. So, you heard the, it first here. I heard it first here. So, basically, in my mind, and I posted on Virtual Geek a taxonomy that to me makes sense. Right. That basically says you have integrated systems, which are assembly of server, network, and externalized storage in some fashion, of which VBlock. FlexPod, uh, HP's uh, Matrix, uh, Thingamabob—they fall into that category, right? right? Um, then you've got what I call the common modular building block category. This is where it's uh, something that, if you strip it apart, it's a you know a relatively small footprint server footprint, <laughs> right? Um, so they all come in different shapes, flavors, degree of hardware variance, but the hardware variance is relative relatively small relative to the universal realm of possibilities of hardware, mm. and they tend to be fairly prescriptive in the what you get at the end. Um, and the vast, vast majority of workloads deployed on that sort of thing are VMs mostly on VMware. When I say mostly, I mean so overwhelmingly mostly that in any normal, sane conversation, I would say universally VMware if i say universal someone's going to go look there's one customer over here that you know is deploying it with with hyperv right um, so the goal of common modular building blocks is low entry point both economically and footprint wise so in other words start small be able to scale by adding some sort of incremental unit But the main design goal is simplicity. Mm. Be up and running quick and easy, so no muss, no fuss. Mm. And then there's a third category. And by the way, Pat Gelsinger stole this from me at (laughs) VMworld. In uh, that blog post was authored before he did his keynote. The third category that that I see are customers that have the desire for some sort of rack scale converged infrastructure stack. That's defined actually by a lot more variation of hardware mm-hmm. and a lot more variation of the the personality. In other words, sometimes they want a VMware personality. Sometimes they want an OpenStack on VMware, aka the VIO personality. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they want KVM and OpenStack. Sometimes they want bare metal. Um, you know, the the, the persona of what it's going to be used for is much broader in that rack scale environment, as well as actually much more mix and match, like so. Sometimes customers go, want extremely storage dense or extremely compute dense.
0: So I mean, what, in a way, you're kind of answering uh, the question I was thinking of, which is, I was going to say, well, what use cases is do you find X, Y, and Z? And by you saying that, you're indicating a use case, which is when you look at hyperconverged, it's got a very narrow applicability. It's for VMs, it's for virtualization. Well, but when you look at a converged environment. The application may not even be virtualization; it could be yeah. something entirely different.
1: So, so typically, um, and again, just to be clear, VMs is a huge swath of, of the use cases for customers. So, yeah. for many customers, they can start with a hyper-converged common modular building block thing. And in that category, there's obviously Evo Rail, but there's other things too um, from from uh, other players in the industry. Typically, the use cases for that is. A virtualized set of workloads. It's not intrinsically uh, required, but that's what those products are designed for. Mm. Right? In Evo Rails case, that is what it's designed for. Mm. Um, their strength, their superpower is simplicity and start small. They all of the all of the devices inside those bands, um, the solutions in those bands, frankly, uh, in the common module building block category. Mm-hmm their sets of data services don't usually have the data services for legacy workloads that you see in data centers. Mm. Just So I'll give you an example, right? So when a customer comes and says, hi, I would like to have a hyperconverged converged appliance, um, but I would like it to support this ERP landscape that's SAP on top of Oracle, and I want to be able to, so that it integrates with uh, SAP's logical volume manager. Do you do that? the answer is uh, no, uh, no. <laughs> right um, and uh, if they go and they say yeah I need to have let's call it uh, a thousand devices that are VMs all replicated synchronously with consistency uh, sorry now are those workloads extremely prevalent well in some customers they are yeah right um, and you know this from all of your SRM days mm. right so the converged appliances, uh, aka what I categorize as integrated infrastructure, mm-hmm. because they're composited out of mature, some people would say legacy, persistent stacks,
0: mm.
1: they have very rich sets of data services. as well, since their networking topologies are fairly open in scope, they uh, can fit into a lot of customers' existing networking requirements they might have in a data center, mm-hmm. okay? So, very good for uh, platform two legacy applications, but they also have got an economic scaling function. This is V blocks and flex pods and things like that, where they don't start small, they s- start pretty big. But their economic scaling curve looks like a step function like this a big step up at about a thousand VMs or so, and then basically a curve that goes like this because you can add blades and, and storage at a or fairly or shelves, so yeah. shelves at a lower cost curve, mm. right? The common modular building blocks, Evo Rail as an example, but again the others in that space too, have got a step function that starts much lower and it goes step, 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 step linearly like this. Once you actually get to about that thousand user mark, the V block style designs are economically lower cost. Mm. Now, the question though is like, is one preferable to the other? The answer is, well, if you're a customer that only needs this small thing, then that is absolutely preferable, a common modular building block. If you're a customer that doesn't really know what you need, but you want something where you could start small and you could grow incrementally, there's like an opportunity benefit of not needing to have a huge set of footprint to get started, mm. right? Uh, if, conversely, you're a customer that is at very large scale inside the core data center already, particularly if you need these sorts of data services mm. for some workloads, then the the classic converged infrastructures win. Um, and, and, by the way, that last category of rack scale, when you go to a, somebody and they go, I'm looking for a hyper-converged stack on which I can run OpenStack on KVM, as well as my Hadoop MapReduce clusters, as well as my in-memory data fabric, blah, 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 blah. In other (laughs) words, they're aiming for a service provider offering SaaS services and things like that, where some subset of workloads or VMs, these rack-scale designs tend to win. So, and by the way, the proof of this, just to go, this isn't Chad long-winded blah, 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 blah. all three categories are growing like wildfire. Mm. All actually at roughly the same percentage CAGR, which is a cumulative annual growth rate, right? right. So they're, gro- they're, growing, they're growing at the same percentage points. Mm. The first category of the converged infrastructure space is already a market that is about $7 billion in total the hyperconverged common modular building block category is about a billion and a half mm. for, for all players in game in 2014. And the rack scale market is about three billion. Right. But all three of them are growing actually at the same kind of curve.
0: Right. I mean, one of the, I've been trying to avoid a situation where I get so embedded in evil rail that, you know, or in hyperconvergence generally that it sort of becomes. A panacea that all problems can be solved by it, and wanting to take a big dose of smell the bacon and not. Well, I used to make this joke when I was so-called evangelist in my previous role. Mm -hmm. Um, What does an evangelist do? He looks into your eyes, deep in your eyes, and says that everything that VMware does is excellent and wonderful, (laughs) (laughs) because we all know that's not true. So, I I mean, the way I mean, we've both been around in this industry for some time. We do seem to lurch every three or four years to panaceas. This one thing that we've got, it's going to solve all your problems. And I think maybe cloud in, in some sectors of the industry became mm-hmm. that. And of course, some of us are all, yeah, cloud is great, but there's this and there's that and there's other thing to consider. So I've been trying to do that with hyperconvergence generally as a category, not to, well, I guess they would call it uh, drinking the cool age or drinking so- from the fountain too much.
1: So I've been, uh, you know, and I've had people basically throw a lot of stones at me for for saying it, but I'm just saying what I think is true. Mm. Uh, I'm sure I've got some bias based on, you know, what I do for a living and and the things I see and do. So I'm not claiming that I'm somehow free of Mm. bias or perspective. Mm. But the common modular building block hyper-converged appliances, their sweet spot is SMB and ROBO. Oh, and when I say that remote office branch offices, when I say that, people go, "Whoa, whoa! Are you saying that they don't scale?" No, 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 no. That's not what I'm saying, right? Uh, in fact, everybody knows that you know the Evol Rail appliance can scale uh, technically to the full size of a of a vSphere cluster. There's no barrier to that, right? And um, and whenever I make that comment, our friends at Nutanix say that I'm I'm uh, I, I don't understand hyperscale environments. Trust me, we have customers that. Use an exabyte of a stuff from us every quarter. I understand rack scale, hyperscale environments very, very well. My point of saying that common modular building blocks, their sweet spot is for SMB and robo customers with a less than a thousand VMs, which is a huge swath of the market. Right. And, and frankly, uh, we've got lots of customers that are actually looking at Evo Rail, even though they're happy VBlock customers that have literally thousands of retail or oil rigs or or, you know, locations all around the globe, is that fundamentally their construction around extreme simplicity, economic building blocks and physical building blocks that are very small, Mm. with an economic curve that makes them less effective as they get very, very large, Mm. means that it's their sweet spot. Not technically that they don't scale. And also, when you say this one mega thing is going to support all workloads, people increasingly start to go, well, then I want to put this workload on it that I expect it to do encryption. I expect it to do this type of replication. I expect it to integrate with my mature application stack or whatever. So the
0: expectations go up and up as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one, one observation that some people have made is, especially when it comes to the hyperconverged market where you buy computed storage in the same volumes, uh, there's an assumption there that your rates of consumption of compute and storage is the same. Um, and it's not. It's not always the case. Um, for some people, I mean, some B's When I used to be an independent, I'd see them uh, in January, and come back a year later, and they're exactly the same size as they were 12 months ago. So there's always this kind of assumption that uh, customers' usage is linearly growing, but there are some customers who are at a steady state, mm-hmm. um, and therefore they, they, although they want good performance, the scalability side of things. Isn't really that relevant to them because they're going to be the same size they were 12 months ago, and that doesn't mean yep. they're a failing business. In fact, they're doing very well. Maybe they're even a growing business, but they're not growing their infrastructure footprint. And isn't that a good thing? They're keeping it's their costs down. They're yeah. improving their profit margin. was not you know what's being in business is all about? But there is that perception of the two with the hyperconverged, the compute and the storage is tied together in a way that you don't have that inflexibility when you think of conventional switches storage and, and, uh, and service, as you were saying, you can yeah. add more servers if you need more servers, add more storage than if you need more storage. So there's that, there's that one. And then the other one about this linear thing, yeah, the, it, it's a small on, on ramp, but I, I was sort of saying to a customer the other day, or somebody at the VMUG, if you are buying them in dribs and drabs, when you need them one at a time, you'll have to expect that the one that you bought and racked it up first, it's much the same price as the one that you racked up and it's your 32nd because uh-huh. you're not coming to the vendor with, we want 3000 of these, because uh-huh. when you come with that size of order, then there is a discussion. It's a negotiation. Yeah, when you're buying them in trips in and drabs. Do you get the economies of scale or the discounting that apply when you come to a vendor with, you know, a massive order? Mm-hmm. Am I right in saying that? Or am I
1: getting the wrong end of the stick? No, it's no, it's so. So put it this way: it's actually not even just a matter of negotiation; it's actually a matter of velocity. So what do I mean by that? So um, let's just say, for the sake of argument, the cost of one of these appliance things is between hundred and hundred and fifty k all in. Right. Right. That's the unit of scaling. Um, the fact that it is fixed in its scope, fixed in its size, low in the number of part numbers, right? So there's it's not the a lot... the thing
0: that makes it easy to consume.
1: The velocity of those products through the channel, and the channel is the primary vehicle which supports the SMB customers in the whole IT ecosystem. Mm. So they provide a lot of extra support, local hands, you know, a lot of value, right? Mm. Um, those people love the fact... That it's really simple to order, really simple to buy, really simple to service, and get into your customer. Great, fantastic. That vehicle is intrinsically designed for velocity, not custom quoting, custom tuning. I got to tell you, there's a there's a well understood thing within EMC, and EMC is a is correctly thought of as a VCE partner, right? VCE is a separate JV, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so. We find a customer that goes, oh, I'd like converged infrastructure, and we go, hmm, is this an Evo Rail fit, or is it a V-Block fit? We try to figure out the right thing, but sometimes, frankly, it's both. Mm. Um, And then we go and we engage VCE, and a lot of people within EMC have found, wow, the first time that we deploy the V-Block, the whole campaign with the customer is long. It's a long slog. We've got to design it and build it, and work through all of the things that are unique to them, and, and then it goes to manufacturing, and it gets manufactured. Now, that whole process of decision to go to get it is short relative to the rest of other you know, mix-and-match stuff. Mm. But the observation you know, is that it's a high-touch thing. It's not a velocity through-the-channel fixed-part, fixed-scope thing, mm. right? Um, so just you know, when, you're, when you're asking about the discounting conversation... It's, it's intrinsically linked to that. When you, when you secure a product through a channel partner, I don't know whether people understand this, but the channel partner has got a certain amount of discounting that they can do without talking to Cisco or HP or, or EMC or anybody. Right? Mm-hmm. That band of discounting, they can just go to town. Right? Um, and generally, those partners, when they work with customers, do it on the basis of well, I'm selling you this hyper-converged appliance, but I'm also going to sell you all of these other things at the same time. Mm. But you're right in 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 the end customers are going to adopt those things in small chunks with less leverage on the economics than they would otherwise. It
0: just seems to me like a fact of reality life. like you know it's life. A, an economic reality uh-huh. the more you buy the more leverage you have Or well, uh-huh. maybe not so much quantity but the amount of money you're putting on the table it's well, yeah. it's in life isn't it? you go buy a car or or anything like that uh-huh. It, uh-huh. it's a discussion and it depends what you're looking for you know so we've 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 knocked that about. I want I want to end with the one little anecdote, which was uh, speaking to a customer at the Evil Realm party, um, and they were explaining to me how they have a large corporate data center racked up with equipment that we would all recognise from the so-called Jurassic period, uh, you know, legacy <laughs> architectures, stuff that they bought like eighteen months ago uh, or less. <laughs> um, but they have they have over two hundred or three hundred uh, subsidiaries. I forget the nature of the business and it probably wouldn't be wise for me to say what it is. And those subsidiaries, they've always had their own stipend of money that they spend on IT. And of course, it's all different and it all expires and goes out of warranty at different times. And other subsidiaries are like, hey, we're independent, it's our asset, it's our money. They're constantly going back to the, the holding company and going, can you tell us what to do? We're not sure what to do. But we want to make our own decisions, but we're not really sure what to do. What should we do? So they're looking at, they're still thinking uh, at the corporate data center, they're going to carry on using the, what I call the three S's, storage, switches, and servers. However, that's constructed, whether it's constructed yep. yourself or converge. But at the, at these uh, subsidiaries, which are obviously much smaller in size, they're looking at EvoRail as a way of saying, look, you, you can take EvoRail, um, I think they're probably looking at a cloud option as well, but they're a bit nervous of that because there's a lot of them for upfront work that needs to do to build a private cloud with no guarantee that they will have any tenants or any customers who choose to buy it. Yeah, These subsidiaries could go, thanks for that, buy, we'll, we'll go down to Best Buy and buy our hardware. And you've built this cloud line with nobody in it. I mean, who wants to take that particular risk unless you have some sort of agreement that they're gonna enroll that, you know, there's a guaranteed customer base. But what they see through Evo Rail is another opportunity in their storefront. Look, you've mm-hmm. come to us, you've asked us for help. This is what we recommend. Yep. Three or four of the other guys who you know already through sitting around having a beer or having dinner are already using it and they're happy. You know, And I think they're looking at it as by stealth, they will gradually get consistency because that's the one thing this... this because you know what the subsidiaries... We're independent, we do our own thing. Oh, but it's broken, can you help us? Yeah, and uh, it's like, well, how can we support your infrastructure when, like, Tommy down one end of the road has got something totally different from Jerry elsewhere? We can't support this.
1: So I think uh, I've seen the same thing, and and literally, um, these are at some customers that spend tens of millions, to even hundreds of millions of dollars on with with us as a partner. Mm. So that so our biggest customers, which means that they're buying the three S's and self assembling them mm. they're more often than not also a v-block customer and consuming it over here but evo rail is going to be a hit yeah. um you know there, there's clearly the response from the customers the biggest of the big using it for remote branch office which is a variation of the scenario that you're describing yeah. right uh sometimes it's retail sometimes it's a subsidiary sometimes it's a boat Sometimes it's a tank, <laughs> right? That's a, probably one of the strangest remote offices a tank you could possibly imagine, <laughs> right? But, um, but you know, you could bring the, that into
0: work, though, couldn't you?
1: <laughs> I think uh, that could be problematic, but yeah, <laughs> it's it's gonna it's it's gonna be a hit. I'm really looking forward to the GA for us in Q1.
0: Well, that leads us on to the next uh, subject. I guess I have to be a little bit careful here because we've got many different qualified Euro mm-hmm. partners, of which yep. EMC is just one. But at the same token, I I can't have Chad on the show and not ask this question because, like, I'd be missing a massive opportunity to drive massive amounts of hits to MikeLaverick.com, which is really what it's all about, folks. (laughs) Um, But joking aside, so, I mean, I've read your um, blog, and I I think what's something I've noticed when speaking to customers about EvoRail is uh, they say, oh, well, how does, uh, I I guess the Fujitsu EvoRail, that'll have more memory or more disk capacity than this one. And I'm like, no, 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 no look at the specifications of these evil Rails from a hardware perspective, they're identicals of each other. They may be sourced by different parts and different things like that, but in terms of the volume of CPU, memory, and disk, pretty much they're all the same at the moment, because you've always got to say that currently, yeah. in, the, in the way where we are, because things can always change. So the way I've looked at it is obviously it is in the interest of those partners to seek to differentiate themselves by other methods, and there's lots yep. of different ways by those partners can... do that so I guess what we're looking at is the differentiation that EMC hopes to bring to their offering which I think is a perfectly viable thing if I could get Fujitsu and Dell and Supermicro and NetOne and Insper on this show telling me what the differentiation is then I think I will be balanced so if you're watching guys you know where I am let's have the conversation and you know it's an opportunity for you to get your message to the yep. massive audience that downloads this podcast on a weekly
1: basis. <laughs> Absolutely massive. Yeah. So, so, uh, uh, so here's what we're doing in a nutshell. So uh, if you think about that list, there's a subset of that list that customers will have an expectation that they can service globally.
0: Yeah.
1: Right? Um, again, I'm not trying to be pejorative or, or negative towards anybody. It's that certain of them will have strengths within geographies and certain of them will have a strength that's a global strength. Right. We, we certainly think that customers will choose the EMC appliance relative to the others if they have an expectation of broad global availability, serviceability and support. Right. Now actually some people ask well so what's, what's the time delta? If you think about what it takes such that we can fulfill thousands of orders that may arrive on day one, that will arrive, frankly, on day one, um, in Paris, in South Africa, in India, and, uh, you know, in Japan, and in Australia, and in uh, Kalamazoo, (laughs) Uh, right? Um, There's a huge supply chain exercise, which is part of launching this product right? So, um, and, uh, Evo, the Evo rail appliance from EMC, which is codenamed mystic. It'll have an actual product name. It's going to be something mystic Marvin. Exactly. (laughs) Um, so it will be something where our channel partners are, are the way that customers get it because we think this is something which people want in volume. They want to have a high local touch. Now in the end, The service is from EMC, the support is from EMC, which means we have to be able to support globally, we need to spare locally, but it means this channel route to market means we got to nail distribution and channel partner vehicles around the globe, right? Mm. Again, that's not a technical differentiation, but trust me, it is a very important thing in the customer value prop, which says, if you say, I'm going to offer four-hour mean time to repair for a part anywhere in the world, there's no asterisk or caveat, that's an important value-add because people want an appliance-like experience. Mm. The second thing that we're doing, um, and I would expect that some of the people on on that list are, are going through the same process, the other ones who are global in, in scope and nature.
0: Yeah.
1: The second thing that we're doing is, is that while Evil Rail was extremely prescriptive about the hardware, um, and I look forward as a partner of VMware to future uh, loosening of those constraints. Uh, uh, so the so for people. Oh, no, that,
0: no, not going to be loosened. Sorry. <laughs> the, for
1: people that don't know the, the the restrictions, it's actually quite prescriptive. Four node, two U form factor, dual socket system, this amount of RAM. You know, this sort of interfaces. It's it's quite prescriptive. It's but right again down, that's
0: to, I'm, down to the component layer, which is yeah. is something I wasn't really that aware of. as that it's like contractually obligated upon the partners. Yeah. and that's they, a- they cannot deviate from that, otherwise they're in breach of contract.
1: Now, now I think that's a little weird, but I understand why Mornay, my good friend, you know, is, is arguing that point, which is that... My boss, by the way, so you better, yeah.
0: be, better say nice things he, about he me. Is, he's <laughs> a very good
1: dude, and, and he, he and I have worked together for many, many moons. Yeah. So, uh, look, the name of the game is a killer out-of-box experience. Simplicity that smokes anything else out there in the industry, and variability is the enemy of mm. uh, of simplicity and guaranteed outcome. Mm. So for this first you know wave of Evo Rail and market, I get it. So first comment was global uh, scale support and, yeah. and channel. The second one is, is that while that hardware specification was really tight, it didn't have anything in there that had to do with hardware fault monitoring call home you know in other words how does the OEM partner know when something goes bump in the night mm. that's not part of evo rail manager mm. agreed agreed i'm not going to disagree <laughs> with that our view as an OEM partner and and i think people in the press didn't quite get this evo rail isn't a vmware product it's an OEM program in other words, the product is the product that comes from Dell, from EMC, from from Supermicro, from from others. Right? Uh, don't get me wrong. There's a ton of IP, VMware IP in there, mm-hmm. but in the end, the product that the customer buys is the appliance. When customers buy an appliance, they have an expectation not only that they can buy it and that it'll arrive and it'll turn on, and that if it broke, someone would come and fix it. But they expect that if the EMC is the support party, and we have a we have a strongly valued support brand in the marketplace. So people are going to choose us partially for our support legacy. Um, That frankly, if in Timbuktu, a drive fails, or there's a mech failure, or there's something wrong just in general, that some alarm bells are going off in the EMC support center. Mm. So we've taken what's called uh, ESRS, which is the EMC support system that's embedded into all of our products. It's a little, it's a VM, right? All right. Um, and basically it's a thing that connects over the internet or a, a modem for people who are in facilities where they don't want internet connectivity, but generally these days it's a, a VPN. Them. Dude, trust me, there are weird customers out there that have... Can you their- make it with a
0: fa- work with a fax as well?
1: <laughs> <laughs> no joke, this thing's been around for eons and has evolved. Yeah. But, but, um, but the vast majority of times now it's deployed as a VM and uses a secure VPN back to corporate right. to... to, to indicate there's faults so ESRS needs to be embedded but we couldn't just say hey use Evo Rail Manager you know install the thing and then at the end open up uh vcenter import the supply you know what i mean like that would kind of bust the the model the mo- model of an appliance so we have to build our support system into the Evo Rail management ecosystem does that make sense?
0: Yeah, and I guess from an EMC's customer's perspective, had we built something like that, we would have given them yet another thing to work with Yep. when they are already got software that picks up on this but other things they've got in their infrastructure. Yep. They don't want, it's, I hate the phrase, single pair of glass, but they don't want yet another pain pain in the ass painting glass being brought into their environment, so yep. maybe it's a good thing that it isn't there, and that we're kind of sitting on you guys to, to I, do that.
1: I think it. I think it's it's incumbent on the OEM partners to add that. Yeah. And if I was if I was looking to buy one of these things, I would turn to the OEM and say, "What are you doing for things like dial home?" Because if the answer is poor, then frankly, it's not going to be a good appliance experience, right? Okay. Now, now, by the way, my comment about VMware didn't add this in is that there's. There wasn't in the, the first rail of Evo Rail Manager this idea of extensibility for third-party thingamabobs to bolt into it. Mm. Right? So it's taking a little bit of extra time to add that chunk in there, but we're gonna do it and we're doing it together as partners, which is great.
0: Yeah.
1: The, the third thing that we're doing um, is Evo Rail starts small but can grow pretty big. And surely if you had you know, four nodes and 16 servers in there, and you're running potentially a thousand plus VMs, you're going to want to replicate that thing. Now, at lower ends of the bands, you'll be able to use vSphere replication. Right. But if you want more, you know, to scale up as your appliance scales, or if you want consistency groups or synchronous replication, we're going to be including at no cost recover point for VM. So there will be a robust VM level replication as part of that.
0: I tell you what thing was interesting about that whole sort of narrative of what you were doing was this thing about uh, when we GA, there'll be thousands of people wanting it. I mean, I've never been as closely involved with a product release as I have with Evil Rail, and I must admit, I only joined the team eight weeks ago. But mm-hmm. I joined just the week before it being <laughs> announced. Good which, timing, man. Which is interesting. <laughs> uh, Talk about being chucked into the deep end. It was like, what's this thing? Um, Morney had actually shown it to me, I think six months ago or more, and he sort of walked me into his office and said, "Look at this thing," and I was like, "I know," I was very interested. But obviously, the opportunity to for me to switch didn't come until that later. But when I was on the um, on the Solutions Exchange, being being the booth babe, what I was struck by was how um, the response was, "When will I be on this? When will it be released?" And it's, it came about just roughly the time that iPhone six became available. And I started to think about two things really, how different product launches are in the world of enterprise IT compared to retail. Like when Apple announces a product, you can buy it the next day. Absolutely chuffing anywhere on the planet. Oh well I know there were people who had waiting waiting times and whatnot. Enterprise IT, you you announce a, a product, GA, but the the leading times are obviously yeah. not the same. I guess there's a difference between a six hundred dollar phone and a couple of hundred K whatever you're buying in, in terms of storage. But what I, the second thing I thought was how interesting was the expectation in the minds of people that they expect something like evil rail or whatever the product is to be delivered at the same rapidity as any retail product uh-huh. and how you can either say, well, you know, we're not the same. We're not the same. We're not trying to be the same, you know, blah, 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 blah. But the reality is if that's the way the customers mentality is turning, if I, that's the way we're starting to think, I, then I think that, is yeah. it up to us to to respond to that positively and not go, whoa, 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 you need we need to take your time with this thing and you know. So so needed time is this tick tock tick tock, you know.
1: I I can tell you that enterprise IT used to always be like making bespoke suits. Mm. Everything was totally custom. Okay what is happening at every customer is that the awareness that infrastructure as a service options can be as turnkey as buying an iPhone. If you forego choice of any kind, you can have an ec a, a Black EC2. one or a it's silver the,
0: one or a gold one.
1: Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, No, no, so, so no joke, and I'm not trying to be negative on, on uh, our friends at AWS here, but AWS have illustrated that if you say, I'm not going to tell you how you build your compute instances. I literally won't even know, right? Um, I could go and start using one five minutes from now. Mm -hmm. And vCloud Air is adding its on-demand capability here in beta, right? In uh, now, in Q4, and it'll GA in Q1. Um, Those things are proving that turnkey IT is possible. Mm -hmm. Now, the trick is, is that not all workloads can run off-prem for various reasons. there's the cons- there's sometimes real reasons, and sometimes there's there's non-real reasons. But the trend towards converged infrastructure is basically uh, an acknowledgement of, well, I need to have an on-prem, but I need to accelerate. Uh, I'm willing to not have the total ease of of just using a cloud provider, but I want something faster and better. Now, what's interesting is then you end up on the spectrum, of in that converged infrastructure domain with common modular building blocks like Evo Rail, mm. there's even less choice, which gets back to this why there's less variation in the product. It will be possible for us to ship, deliver, and install an Evo Rail appliance after we GA anywhere in the globe with not quite iPhone 6 like <laughs> speed, but man oh man, pretty damn fast. Right, and okay. VBlock is somewhere in the middle that says you still have got some variability but within 40 days boom you can have it sure. right
0: right before we move on to our last question i've got a warning for all people who are sort of getting to my age i'm 44 now you see starting to get a bit old aren't we all oh,
1: yeah you're young man well
0: actually people say how young i look and i always say well you know actually i'm 35 and this is what an it career has done to me <laughs> in that period of time no amount of botox can correct the damage that's been done but um, one of the things I've noticed is in our kind of industry, the use of comparing, oh, you know what people want is an app store, like iTunes, you know, they want to be able to go in. And it, corporate IT, it's got to be like an app store, they say. And I think, you know, that's a very dangerous analogy because for somebody like me and my decrepit age, that resonates, you know. I still go to an app store or buy my music through iTunes and I plug a USB cable into my device and I sync it back. My daughter looks at me and thinks, "Oh man, you're so out of date. I'm on Spotify. I don't buy music anymore. I just subscribe and stream it." So I've been saying to people, you know, you're showing your age if you start talking about App Store, you know. <laughs> you're showing that you've got a little bit of gray drowned here around the back, you know. By if the you way, you really spot- want to be cool with the kids, Spotify. man. Spotify 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 you know
1: spotify is a great emc customer by the way yeah is, but you know. <laughs> but
0: i, I i'm, I'm a certain people you know we don't let's not call this an app store let's call it a subscription center or a streaming yeah. center but let's not say app yeah. store because otherwise you're giving away how old you might be but anyway okay well I'm, our last question is a contentious one um so i uh, and i'm sure you know what i've realized this after I joined VMware, I used to always say to vendors when I was doing the vendor work, "I'm going to ask you some tricky questions and put you on the spot." Because I didn't didn't want to just pounce on them. And one of the vendors said, "I deal with these questions all the time. Just ask them." Yeah. <laughs> I was like, "Oh yeah, of course." It's not like they get like I'm the only person who asks difficult questions. But it was the way I used to sort of apologize just in case I upset them. You know I do? Th- I do
1: that. I do that and apologize always in advance because I'm Canadian. Right. It's in our it's in our nature. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Well, I
0: mean, yeah, I mean, I'm British, you know. Sort of embarrassment and apology is like, uh, our, <laughs> is our is our in our culture. So extreme IO and the whole upgrade kind of saga, destructive, disruptive, blah blah blah. Um, I've read the blog post, so I'm kind of. I mean, I've never used the product before, you know, um, and it probably wouldn't have come to my intention hadn't. If there hadn't been so much social media light and heat around it, oh, all the probably... noise
1: and all the noise and fireworks.
0: Yeah, yeah, and there's probably been there was probably one the day before and the day after, but nobody saw those. It's a bit like uh, you know how politicians use uh, a major event to bury bad news. You know, so something horrible announced happens, and our government secretly rushes out all these announcements while everybody is looking over here. And nobody notices it, so it's often difficult from somebody who's not really a storage person to know how significant or whatever these things are. But I'll shut the up, oh, and you can hold forth. Um,
1: so, 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 uh, so for those people that don't know what the heck we're talking about, um, the <laughs> Extreme IO is an all-flash array. Um, we g8 it. Uh, at the beginning of the year, really, it was like no, it was December something 2013 when we GA'd it. So we're in the third quarter of its uh, availability. Mm-hmm. It is a wild success by any measure. So um, literally fastest growing product for us ever. But you know, f- fast growing off of a small base. I mean, so we have literally uh, in Q2, we crossed a thousand customers. But for perspective, there's hundreds of thousands of VNX customers out there, right? Just, you know, you it's know, get
0: relative, you know.
1: right. And, and you know, um, it is growing at a at a CAGR rate, which is astounding, uh, uh, this cumulative annual growth rate. So, yay, happy, happy customers. Fantastic, right? Um, the all flash array market is a furiously competitive one. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's an area that's hot and that's part of the the reason why I think uh this debate was so furious what occurred was uh it has been non-disrupt designed for non-disruptive upgrades from the get-go in other words it's built into the architecture of like how do you go through an upgrade you you move all the devices non-disruptively from one active brain to another active brain and it's a scale-out design so we can do that
0: kind of firmware update that you would do with any two-headed controller on an array type situation right
1: now we always had planned a hardware update in the future that would be the vehicle to introduce compression. Right? Uh, compression and dedupe are very important in all flash arrays because they change the economic cost, unit cost of flash. And the unit cost of flash is still relatively high from me- compared with magnetic media when measured in dollar per gigabyte. Flash smokes it when measured in dollars per IOP. IOPS. Yeah. Right? So anything that you can do to reduce the cost of dollars per gig broadens the usability of this asset for a customer. So it's thumbs up, good. And therefore you see everybody in the industry wildly arguing over whose implementation of dedupe is better, whose implementation of compression is better, and so on and so forth. So we knew that we needed to add this capability. We had originally targeted for a hardware refresh. We knew that to hit it, we were either going to need to have more RAM in the system, aka new hardware, mm or we would need to change the size of the unit of storage on the storage subsystem, which reduces the amount of RAM per unit storage, the metadata, right? Okay. The engineers discovered a way to pull in the compression capability in the roadmap when we're then faced with a very difficult choice, which is, do we make this compression capability available to customers who bought the existing hardware? Or do we hold off on that capability capability for customers only once they get the new hardware. That was the internal raging debate about whether we should do this, because if we offer it to customers with the existing hardware, an extreme I.O., for better or for worse, and most customers say it's for the better, keeps all of the metadata in RAM. The reason that's important is traditionally arrays, um, whether they're all flash arrays or hybrid arrays, the metadata gets paged down to persistence on Onto SSDs or, God forbid, on the magnetic media. And then any metadata updates go from really, really fast to really, really slow,
0: mm.
1: right? To put in perspective, getting a metadata update into RAM takes tens of nanoseconds. To do it to an SSD takes hundreds of microseconds, mm. right? So for perspective, that's even if you said it's 10 microseconds, that means it's a thousand times slower than if it's in RAM. RAM, right? Mm -hmm. And then if you God forbid ever have to get it out of an SSD and onto magnetic media, it's going to take milliseconds, which means it's millions of times slower than if it's in RAM.
0: It's like the moon and back.
1: Right. Extreme IO said, let's make a design where all the metadata is always in RAM and therefore performance is linear and dedupe and compression are linear and nice, stable flat curve. That's its design center. However, it means that the capacity of the system and the amount of metadata is linked to the physical amount of how much DRAM you have in the node. Mm. So the decision that we made is we said, you know what? We are going to offer the customers a choice. They can stay on the 2.4 code base. And from the 2.0 bit upgrade to 2.2 was non-disruptive. From 2.2 to 2.4 was non-disruptive. So we said, if you're happy with 2.4 and what you're getting, and lots of customers are happy, Mm -hmm. we said, we will support this for years. So years, meaning I don't know off the top of my head, but I no, it's north of three years. That doesn't mean that it's like frozen and will support it. It means that fixes, patches, you know.
0: Yeah, it's not being end of life. Or anything it's like
1: not that. being end of life. So, if you know, good. If you would like to get the new capabilities of compression, and compression also roughly not only doubles the space efficiency, but it also doubles uh, high bandwidth workload performance. So megabyte per second throughput into the system is much higher. Mm-hmm. You're. You're going to have to go through a disruptive upgrade. You're going to have to pull the data off the array because we're going to change from a 4K allocation to an 8K allocation so we can fit the metadata in the RAM of the system. Mm. Okay. Now, that update was widely communicated to our customers, but the way that we did it, this is an area where I think we could be better as a company, we did it via high-touch one-on-one, um, you know, like, tell customers, this is what's going on, what do you think, which way do you want to go, et cetera, et cetera. The thing that was thrown up was actually the the first blog that came out on a Friday Mm. um, that was the first thing that I saw was from a customer in Australia, uh, Andrew Dauncey, who works for a hospital. Right. And he said, hey, we just bought one of these. I wasn't told. I'm unhappy. Now, by the way, they hadn't deployed it yet. So for him, actually... It's still non-disruptive in the sense that
0: It hasn't got any data on it. They,
1: they, they've actually just deployed. They're in the process of deploying it now, and 3O is GA now. Right. So, you know, but he said, "Hey, I was, I was angry that this wasn't made uh, transparently to me in the decision to buy the array." Right. Um, and then on Monday, I responded with my blog post, kind of explaining and just, I've got an open kimono kind of view of the world that says you're always best to be just completely. transparent. Hopefully not, too, right?
0: hopefully, not
1: too open. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm going to start to just. Uh, is this on video? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> so, so uh, I wrote the blog post that kind of explained what we were doing, why we were doing it. Right. By the way, again, just I know that people are not going to believe me, or they're you know the conspiracy theorists you know came out of the woodwork. I saw after my blog post. What's interesting is I remember the debates about should we offer this internally as a, as an EMC exec. And what was interesting was we said, look, it's the right thing to do. It's the right thing for the customers. It frankly makes our product more competitive, so it's not purely altruistic. The product is even more compelling than it was before. Yay! So we go, well, there will be some pain that's caused by customers. How can we mitigate the pain? Well, we can mitigate the pain through professional services. So we put aside literally north of $10 million worth of our budget to fund professional services for for the customers to help them through a migration, uh, you know, using storage vMotion, using other techniques, we funded about another ten million dollars worth of swing capital, which means sometimes a customer doesn't have enough capacity to be able to migrate. To do the move because it's to too expensive. Yeah, yeah. So, so we basically built a whole pool of capacity for us and our channel partners to go in and say, "Great, if you were on two four and want to stay, great. If you're on two four and you want three zero, it's a free upgrade. You're going to get all this great new." Benefit. Unfortunately, it's going to be non-disruptive. Well, you know, here's the services and the swing capital. So we're trying to think of the customer first. The one thing that I think we could have done better is the moment that we knew that, and we knew that in, I think August, mm-hmm. um, that we were going to go through this process. Decision made. We should have put it on the IO blog, uh, the, the the company site. We were being we we're doing it transparently with our partners and with our customers. There's 5,000 people in the world. There's about 50 within EMC (laughs) that are uh, extreme IOSEs on my team, right? But there's about another 5,000 in the channel that are part of what we call our flash miners. So we do weekly webcasts to them. We we broadcast like roadmap, details, tools, whatever. Mm -hmm. And on there, we were transparent to them. But the fact that we didn't post it like on our EMC.com Page right somewhere gave a fig leaf for people to claim if we were if you're a competitor mm. that we were somehow being disingenuous right and all of the noise in the hubbub at least from where i sit came from competitors the 90 plus percent yeah um five percent from people in the blogosphere uh um and 5% from customers who were actually pissed off right and and the the 5% of customers who were actually pissed off were usually pissed off because we didn't get the information to them soon enough
0: right i guess that argument about shall we defer this till the next big revision of the product well you could say two things about that one you're just deferring the issue until some later stage anyway eventually you're going to find that It just so happens to be at the point that your maintenance and warranty is expiring. So you would have to have got your data off the array anyway. And then I guess the other part of it, and I don't know whether this resonates for you, but there's a bit of a gag in the UK, which is brand new customers only. And it's this kind of phenomenon that happens in the first world where you buy something, you're with a company and you're loyal and then uh, a deal comes out, but you're not privy to that. You're not allowed to have that. It's for brand new customers only. Right, And in fact, I think it's some bank has actually made a gag advert about this, where the person comes yeah. into the bank looking for this new product and is like, oh, sorry, brand new customers online. And well, I've been with the bank for 10 years. So it's that always that problem, I think. And you mentioned Apple earlier. There's always been that thing about where Apple doesn't really in the past didn't really advertise when a new version of a product was going to come out. Mm-hmm. So people like to go online, kind of Mac rumors or whatever. Is this a good time to buy? because I don't want to buy the thing. And then next week it's, Hey, it's a big announcement. We've got a brand yeah. new version. <laughs> oh, and I'm stuck with the, with the old, uh, old model, you know, but, but so whichever, either way you go, you're going to, there is friction. And that's why I guess, like you were saying internally, there was that debate. It's like, there isn't a perfect way to do this. Nope. All you can do is offer the best experience, given the situation that's there, I guess. The, uh, So you know, I think the
1: lesson learned on—I actually think that we made the right decision. Personally, I think we also made the right decision and did did it the right way. If I could do it all over again, build a time machine, I would have pushed harder for more just total transparency. I think transparency is a winning strategy, um, just fundamentally, Mm -hmm. as long as your stuff is good. And you know, I can't talk about how we did in Q3, um, because we don't announce our earnings. VMware announces on the on the. Evening of the 21st, EMC does it the morning of the 22nd. Right. Uh, if people are curious about how the market is responding, I mean, not the blogosphere and our competitors, those people are absolutely going to make it sound like it's the end of the, <laughs> the world. Mm. Um, you know, all you need to do is turn into that, tune into that uh, October the 22nd. We're a public company, so how we're doing and how that portion of our business is doing, we're going to have to disclose publicly. Sure. Right? I mean,
0: well, I... am what I kind of like about the story, which is a bit perverse, is from my perspective, as somebody who's been into virtualization and, and VMware, mm-hmm. it, it's a great storage case or use case around using storage vMotion, which you, you know, traditionally maybe people have used it because they're running out of space or a particular load of volume is oversaturated with IOPS. Therefore, yep. you know, they want to do some carving or they're moving from one storage vendor to another. That does happen. Happens um, all the time. Happens all the time. Um, but also I kind of... Re- I remember when uh, VMFS3 was the file system, and there wasn't an in-place upgrade to the new file system. And in a way, that's where Storage vMotion started its life. It was a command script years back in VI3, and it was there to help you facilitate upgrades from VI3 to VI4 and still get the file system. So you were running ESX3 and ESX4 in the same virtual center. Yep. Two different file systems are using storage vMotion to eventually evacuate those ESX hosts. Some customers did that. Some looked at it and went, well, no, we're going to have two separate environments and you know, eventually over time, this thing won't live anymore and we won't care about it. And some people yep. said, no, we wanted to do the move. And I, I kind of see it as being a very sort of similar situation. What was nice about, I think, the changes that happened after VMFS 3 was things like auto grow. And other features came into the file system, didn't require a new version of the file system at mm-hmm. all. So we were able to, you know, for the got bigger, we could grow the VMFS volume, basically extents and all that kind of stuff has gone away, you know, as an issue. So
1: that's, that's the, so like that uh, example there is actually the example of, that I was trying to point out in my blog. And it's always dangerous for, for, for I try to always only refer to EMC or VMware, um, in the, in my blog post, because if I ever mention a, a competitor, you know, there people, people are right. Even if I'm not trying to be uh, negative, I'm trying to be as, um,
0: uh, neutral know, and balanced
1: as, balance as possible.
0: You're trying to be like the BBC. <laughs> exactly.
1: Uh, milk toast. <laughs> so, so the, the, uh. The observation, I made the analogy to the VMFS 3 to 5 upgrade, the one that you just pointed out. Anytime that the persistence layer of a storage stack changes the on-disk layout versus the metadata layer, an on-disk or an on-SSD in the case of an all-flash array, um, an on-disk layout structure change is is something that there's no uh, way to kind of teleport your way through. And um, the thing that was just... You know, kind of made me angry and frustrated. I gotta confess, as a human, but also kind of sad in a way. Was a lot of the darts that were being thrown by competitors. You know, I, I'm kind of like, guys, you don't even really know what you're talking about. So, for NetApp people, when they went from seven mode to cluster mode, that was a big change, hmm. and it involved on disk structure changes. And there, it was a there's no way to kind of just teleport from seven mode to C mode. Uh, but then people said, well, 7 mode has always been constant. Uh, no. When it went from a FlexVol, from a traditional vol to a FlexVol, that was a same thing. A big change, a benefit to their customers, mm. but a disruptive change. VMFS 3 to VMFS 5, likewise. And then I basically had a whole bunch of people pile on from the hyper-converged domain going, we've never needed to do one of these. And the answer is, no, you have. But what you used is you used Storage vMotion to be able to upgrade the persistence layer here, move workload over, and there was always a little bit of swing capacity in the system. So you're upgrading the system as you went, like somehow people did it from, you know, vI three to vSphere four, mm. right? And now people use Storage vMotion all over the place. And one person even commented on the blog as a customer of Extreme IO that they're like, look, did it suck that I have to do this? Yeah, but you know what? I just stored built swing capacity, storage V motion, and I was done. Hmm. Right? It's got, I, this I, has
0: got me thinking, you know, I was talking about how divergent the hyperconvergence market is or hyperdivergence, if you want to call it that. Yeah. Is we often, people, companies often want to talk about how they're disrupting the market, but they want to do it non-destructively. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, and sometimes it's difficult to disrupt the market and not actually be disruptive at the same time because by definition, you're creating a lot of change. And to create a lot of change, you have to create change. You know, I don't know. Well, I once had, somebody said to me, um, I was talking about virtual desktops at the London v This is a few uh, years ago. And it was about change. And they were saying, well, there's, there's a lot of change going on here. And that's very disruptive. And I was like, yeah, change tends to be like that. And if, if it's not disruptive, it isn't change. Yeah. <laughs> so like, our job is to manage that. You know, this is what you do in the world of IT. Things are constantly yeah. changing. You've got this environment that is built up of different vendors, and they're always innovating and changing, and it's disruptive. And then so that what the customer has to do is yep. manage that based on so, the benefits that change brings and the amount of disruption it, it introduces. We are disruption managers, so really, you know. I
1: I, I, I totally agree. And actually, that reminds me, like, the biggest disruption – in the world of IT, in the domain of IT is the disruption that's occurring at the data and application layer of the stack. In other words, mm. above the whole infrastructure stack entirely. And a lot of people, again, um, I would argue, like my good friend Vaughn in his evangelist role, as the way you characterized evangelism earlier is probably pretty correct. <laughs> uh, well, I and- used to
0: Va- say it as a joke because yeah. if you have the word evangelist in your job title, it's like... I mean, especially here in in in, in the UK, everyone's like, "What the hell's that?" And so I used to always make a joke, is like make it like I was like it was some sort of religious cult. Uh, absolutely, you know, that we're going to stare into your eyes and then stick you in the back of a van and take you off to the mountains somewhere, and you'll never <laughs> be seen by your family again. You know, that's the kind of evangelist I am. You know, so it helps but, diffuse that kind of perception that somehow you think you've got all the answers and that you're a guru and well if which... if
1: you if if you're saying it jokingly then yes if you're saying it with dead Seriously, earnestness then,
0: then you're in trouble then
1: you got to you got to watch out but so you know he made a comment uh, in the whole debacle that basically said we live in the era of cloud and everything needs to be non-disruptive all the time hmm. and the observation i've got is that the only way that you can actually make your application survivable for all infrastructure related uh, behaviors mm. has nothing to do with infrastructure that is completely. Do with the app and
0: the way it's designed. It has
1: everything to do with the app, and, the it the app and that mm. and the reality of it is, is that um, extreme I/O, pure all the all flash arrays, they're the newest, latest, and most awesome version of yesterday's storage architecture. Mm. So <laughs> even so VSAN mm. and even scale io they are storage architectures that support. Infrastructure that is infrastructure resilient, mm. right? That that the application is expecting a LUN or a file system, it's expecting it to uh, be there. It's expecting for a, a VM to to have some something that can persist and run. Mm. There's emergent storage persistence models that are that are built for applications that don't presume that object stores, so S3, Viper, Ceph, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. In-memory database models. Um, and the thing that's interesting is people look at it and go, "Well, how do people keep these new applications up and running?" So, AWS took down somewhere between ten and twenty percent of all their EC two nodes without, you know, saying, "Hey, make sure that you're ready." Like they basically announced to the to the entire user base, this week we're going to be rebooting them. Just be aware, because they had to, they, they were fixing a, a Zen uh, major Zen patch, right? right. Okay. But Netflix, who's a big Amazon customer, had no outage, even though at random a huge percentage of their nodes are popping up and down. Mm. So oh, terribly disruptive at the infrastructure layer no and effect. yet no effect. How do, you, how do you build applications that do that? Well, yes, infrastructure has to be more resilient every day. We got to be smart about using storage vMotion. We've got to use as much NDU as we can in every persistent stack. But the reality of it is, is that to think about availability without talking about how apps are designed, if you ask me, is stupid.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess the argument that a lot of people will have is that panacea of the scaled out uh, yep. or designed for failure, I think the term is, yep. is the term to use, is a wonderful idea, but it doesn't reflect the vast majority of corporate applications that we end up supporting.
1: I, By the way, I agree with that argument. Mm-hmm. And that's why I'm saying in the domain of infrastructure resilient applications. Applications that expect the infrastructure to be resilient. Mm. Usually at the bottom layer they have a database, you know, um, and that database is expecting a VM or a LUN or something. Mm. I think it is our duty at the VMware layer for you guys, at the infrastructure layer for EMC, at the converged infrastructure appliance layer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we need to try to build it like a tank, right? but again i think everybody in it needs to heed your guidance that says our job is to understand that ecosystem and go how do i make it as non disruptive as i can mm. while not believing any delusion that infrastructure will always be non disruptive and always resilient
0: i mean i guess here's another way of trying to say it is if you want that 24/7 365 zero downtime don't expect to get that from conventional infrastructure. You're going to have to have it designed in your application, like the Netflix example, if you want correct. that. That's correct. If you want that, that's what you're going to have to build. Yeah. Um, because uh, the way I look at it is a lot of these applications that we are supporting were never designed to have those sorts of level of uptimes in the first place. I mean, simply patch management alone on a lot of the things that we support will eat into your 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 999, whatever it is, and that's yep. just like applying a bloody bundle to an OS because there's a, a security patch. And uh, uh,
1: th- I, this customer I'm not going to name, but historically, a lot of customers would pick EMC and they'd pick our our most reliable, available, serviceable platforms, which are VMaxes for those classic workloads that need to be built like a tank. Hmm. Um, we've got a customer where we triggered an outage, and the outage was triggered not by you know failure of hardware or software, but the resident. You know, had a LUN, that LUN was mounted, and there was a clone that needed to be promoted, but it was not on that particular device.
0: Mm.
1: You know, accidentally the human said, no, I'm going to revert this one, and then boom, you had an application outage. Mm. Now, how can you avoid that? You can basically only avoid that sort of thing by basically saying, I'm going to have zero expectation of infrastructure resilience Mm. in my application design. And again I'm not trying to say hey that's the panacea and everyone needs to go that way the reality like you said 95% of workloads within enterprises are depending on infrastructure resilience from VMware and from the infrastructure underneath it. You so,
0: could you could again, argue I'm not that, I'm not you could argue that was the one big selling point or one of the big selling points of virtualization that you could take these conventional applications mm-hmm. put them on a a, v, a vSphere HA cluster <laughs> And deliver availability to them, albeit a restart of that VM, yeah. without all the complexity of in-guest availability tools and the nightmare of upgrading I... them and maintaining them. And I don't know whether there's any truth in this kind of urban myth, but I'm going to repeat it anyway, yeah, because I can. But that story about <laughs> uh, clustered systems, you know, like back in the old sort of NT4 days, you know, and people actually did. People did research on those two node clusters and found that they had less good uptimes than a single node instance because the people managing the application owner didn't really understand the clustering technology. A lot of the times, the reason that they didn't work was through operator error. And you could bring in some guy who could build the perfect cluster, the clustering guru, who then hands it over to the application owner, leaves the building, and then suddenly the quality of that clustered experience is in the hands of somebody who knows the application that's running in it, but don't, doesn't understand the, the platform that's around it. I don't I, know whether that's an urban myth, but I've heard I, a lot of people say it to me.
1: Uh, it's been my, so I don't want to perpetuate the myth, but I like you, I'm going to perpetuate it. thats <laughs> That's been my experience, right? So with classic Microsoft OS clustering, even with Oracle Rack, I find a lot of customers who basically find that the passive active Rack cluster, is more available than the active-active rack cluster, mm. which goes so against
0: had... all the grains of why you think people do this in a way. If it doesn't succeed in driving up times, what has been the point? Yeah, you know, in some respects. Hey, you know, Chad, I could sit and talk like this for hours, and we probably have at dinner at various <laughs> times. But uh, I think our poor suffering, my poor suffering listeners, are probably thinking, you know. It's about time that we that we wrapped up. They they probably you know need to be somewhere by now. So um, well, I'd Mike, like you, thank you, man. Thank well, you. Well, you know, I'd like to thank you for being on the on the show and being the inaugural uh, speaker. The really inaugural an inaugural. I don't know. What, I can't even say the word. Good God! But being the first person back, that's the easiest way of saying <laughs> it on Chinwag uh, Reloaded. So thank you very much for your time. I know what a busy person you are, and you know you're a rock star, a god in the firmament looking down upon me in my humble cloud. I'm joking. joking. But thank you very much. Oh, and thank come you for on, spirit. dude. I'm kidding. I'm just joking. Um, so, but thank you very much for being on will the show.
1: I, will I see you in Barcelona?
0: Yeah, I'll be there. We're days away. Um, this is probably going to date this, this podcast a little bit. I'm trying to build up a little bit of a buffer of, of podcasts because the problem last time when I was doing this was like, oh, I haven't done the chin wag, and I've got to find somebody by tomorrow
1: <laughs> so i'm trying to build up a buffer
0: so i might rub that out of the show no i'll leave it in we'll leave it in but um yes uh, you will see me in in barcelona but uh, you'll have to come down to the evo rail booth if you want to talk to me
1: i will see you there all right, so sure. thank you so much man it's my pleasure mike i'll come on anytime you ask
0: cheers oh you've got that i can write that down now. anytime i can have him on the show all right yeah. anyway thanks everybody for listening and i'll see you next time